If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Paul's epistle to Titus, chapter 3. We've been a regular series of sermons through the book of Titus, and we come this morning to chapter 3, and we'll be considering verses 1 through 7. Titus chapter 3, please follow along as I read verses 1 through 7. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, remind them, that is the Cretan Christians, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Several years ago, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated which belief, if any, was unique to the Christian faith. And as they deliberated, they began to eliminate various possibilities. Some suggested the incarnation. No, the group concluded, other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Or perhaps the resurrection then. Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until, so the story goes at least, the famous Oxford Don C.S. Lewis entered the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked, and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Oh, that's easy, Lewis responded. It is grace. In our day, people have all sorts of notions about what Christianity is about at its core. Many today think that Christianity is about religious formalism or is basically a means of psychological support, or that it is a platform for political activism. Still others see Christianity basically as a system of traditional family values that must be jealously guarded, or that it is even a form of militant fundamentalism designed primarily to assert control over others. All these notions are, of course, wrong, and the fact that these misconceptions persist in our day is evidence of at least two things. First of all, it's evidence that the people of the world are not paying close attention to the actual statements of the Bible. Uh, They're not actually paying attention to the way in which the Bible expresses the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith. But secondly, the fact that these misperceptions persist is probably also evidence that Christians themselves have not always done a good job of actually conveying what the Christian faith teaches. If I were to talk to an unbeliever about the Christian faith, and if I wanted to not only correct false notions, 
about the Christian faith, um, but also to begin to explain what is most fundamental about Christianity, one of the things I would endeavor to do is to educate such a person on the Bible's teaching about grace. Grace, particularly the grace of God, is at the center of the Christian message. It animates and gives life to just about everything. This is arguably the most distinctive feature of the Christian religion when compared to the other religions of the world. The Christian religion is a religion of grace. The Christian message, what we call the gospel, is that the grace of God towards sinful man has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, and He graciously offers the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all those who come to Him in repentance and faith. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That is the Christian message. If you don't understand grace, you won't advance very far in your understanding of Christian belief. Grace is at the center, and grace indeed animates everything. Christian faith is not primarily about a system of merits and demerits. It's not about works. It's not about religious formalism. It's not about political activism. It's not about how to cope psychologically. It is fundamentally about the grace of God towards sinful men and women. And this is what gives Christianity its distinctive shine. In a cruel world, in a fractured and divided world, in a world full of disorders and conditions, in an anxious world, a sinful world, a guilty world, grace emerges as something fresh and bright and relevant. Indeed, there's nothing more relevant in our day and age than the grace of God. Grace brings forgiveness. Grace brings healing. Grace brings reconciliation. Grace gives perspective on the world. Now, we have been considering the theme of grace as it's laid out for us by Paul in the book of Titus. Uh, the idea of the grace of God coming, appearing, is introduced dramatically, strikingly, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, where we read, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, the, the word there, if you were with us earlier in the series, the word is the Greek word from which we get our word epiphany. The grace of God appeared like a flash of light. It was a revelation. It shone on us. The grace of God appeared, and of course, we understand grace to be a person, grace to actually be God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appeared. The Word became flesh. God came incarnate. He appeared as an expression of the grace of God by which God was reconciling the world to Himself and bringing salvation for all people such that everyone in this room, and indeed everyone you meet with, comes under the sphere of the gospel offer. The gospel is for all people. The grace of God is for all people. Jesus' life and work is for all people. But then Paul quickly moves from verse 11 then to verse 12 where he says this grace that brings salvation also trains us. That is, trains Christians, trains those who have come to believe upon the Lord Jesus and have come to embrace the grace of God, this grace also trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright and godly lives in the present age. All kinds of people that want us to make a, a, a dichotomy between law and grace. But in this passage, grace is seen to be our tutor, seen to be our teacher, to tell us how to live uprightly before God, to tell us how to live righteously before God. The grace that saves becomes the grace that teaches, or the grace 
that trains us to live in accord with God's will. And then last week we considered verses 1 and 2. Grace saves us, grace trains us. Grace also gives us a new posture and perspective toward those outside the Christian faith. Gives us a new posture toward outsiders. We read in verse 2, we're to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That is the fundamental disposition toward the world that grace gives us. It gives us a new posture and perspective toward those outside the Christian faith. And that is the subject I'd like to speak about this morning from Titus 3 verses 1 through 7 with an emphasis on verse 3. The perspective that grace gives us on those outside the Christian community. And then, God willing, next week, we'll return to this passage and expound what Paul teaches about the nature of salvation, uh, the nature of the change, the new status that grace has brought about for Christian people. Let me just say a quick word uh, to those here this morning who are not Christians. You're here this morning, you would not identify yourself as a Christian. Uh, well, let me just say, if you're not a Christian, you have come this morning to an insider's meeting. So, so the purpose of our gatherings on Sunday morning is for Christians to come together and to worship God. And so we seek to lay out a feast of God's Word and prayer and song that is edifying to the people that have gathered here this morning for the purposes of worshiping the Lord. It's designed to be edifying to the Christians here. Um, but though you've come to an insider's meeting, I want to say we're very glad that you're here. And it's very good and appropriate that you would be here this morning and um, this morning, I'm going to be talking about, from this passage, our relationship as Christians to you as one who would not identify as a Christian. And I'm very glad that that's the case. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable about that. It would be a very good thing for you to understand how we think about ourselves and how we understand our relationship to you. And it may be that you might learn something today about the Bible's perspective on those who actually don't embrace the Bible and embrace the Christian faith. I have three main headings to frame our exposition of this passage. The first heading is this, grace teaches us to love outsiders. Grace teaches us to love outsiders. Look again, if you would, at verses 1 and 2. Remind them, Paul says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, our brother Zach opened these verses up for us last week. My purpose now is not to go over all the ground that he covered, but I want you to have this material fresh in your mind. So verses 1 and 2, especially verse 2, describe something of the posture Christians are to have toward people outside the Christian community. This is a description of our fundamental orientation before people outside the church by the grace of God. We speak evil of no one. We avoid quarreling. We're to be gentle. And I love that last phrase. It's a little difficult to translate, but we, we show perfect courtesy toward all people. All regard, all consideration, all grace toward those who are outside the Christian community. This is to be the Christian's orientation toward the world. We're to show graciousness and gentleness toward our fellow men. And the people of the world, those outside the Christian community, are all the objects of our love and our compassion and our goodwill. 
The New Testament never calls us to take an adversarial posture toward the people of the world. Towards sin, yes. Towards Satan, yes. Toward worldliness, yes. But the Bible never calls us to take an adversarial posture toward those who are outside. The Bible often uses the language of warfare to describe our posture toward sin, toward the present evil age, toward Satan. But as far as I'm aware, it never uses that language to describe our relationship to sinners and to those outside the church. Brothers and sisters, we're not to be adversarial or hostile or abrasive or unloving toward the people of the world. Rather, we're to be kind and charitable and generous and compassionate. We love outsiders. We're to be gracious to those outside the Christian community. Like the Lord, we love sinners. And consider Jesus in His earthly ministry. Do you remember the account of Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler in Mark 10? Here this young man comes to Jesus He's quite rich. He wants to know how he can inherit eternal life. And he he comes to Jesus and asks him, what what, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, have you kept the commandments? And he says, oh, yes, I've kept all of them up from my youth. You can imagine the the self-assurance and the self-righteousness present in someone who could say, they've they've kept all the commandments. And that's the posture of this young man. And in the narrative, in verse 21, we read, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he says to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have. And of course, the young man leaves, sorrowful, because he had many possessions, presumably not wanting to do what Jesus was calling him to. But you catch that detail. He looked at him, and he loved him. This self-righteous man, this man who would presume that he's never transgressed the law of God, Jesus loved him, and he sought to speak the truth to him. There are all sorts of other examples of Jesus having compassion on sufferers and sinners. There's the account of the widow of Nain in Luke 7, where we read that Jesus, when He saw her, He had compassion on her. There's the account of Jesus looking over the crowds in a number of passages. The one that most often comes to my mind is in Matthew 9, where Jesus looks upon the crowds. These are not His disciples, by the way. These are people who are lost in their sin. He looks upon the crowds, and we read He was moved with compassion because they were disquieted and dispirited, like sheep having no shepherd. That is the posture of our Lord towards sinners, one of compassion, one of generosity, one of grace, desirous that they would too come to embrace the grace of God. The Lord was truly a friend of sinners. He loved outsiders, and His desire was to bring them in. And so it is to be with Christ's followers. The Bible teaches that when grace brings salvation to a person and transforms that person through the new birth, that individual becomes a lover of his neighbor and a compassionate friend of sinners. Such a person becomes gracious in his or her orientation to outsiders. There's a quote, those who have been here for a long time, you've heard me share this quote probably ten times by now, and so bear with the repetition, but it just suits this theme so well. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in talking about the relationship that Christians ought to have to those outside the church, said that to me, a follower of Jesus means a friend of man. A Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace. Wide as the reign of sorrow is the stretch of his love, 
And where he cannot help, he pities still. Wide is the reign of sorrow. The idea is Christians ought to have open arms toward a suffering and sinning world. Wide is the reign of sorrow. How wide is that? So wide is to be the stretch of the Christian's love. And where he cannot help, still his compassion and his pity issues forth to sufferers and to sinners. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to apply what I'm saying now with a diagnostic question. The question came to me in the study this week with with great conviction personally, so I'm asking this to myself as much as I'm asking it to you. What do you experience in your heart when you witness the sins of people outside the Christian community? I'm thinking like flagrant sins. What do you experience in your heart? What rises up in your heart when you see the sins of people outside the church, outside the Christian community? Is it primarily, is it only revulsion and disgust? Or does compassion rise up in your heart for sinners? The Lord said from the cross to those who were putting him to death, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you remember the description at the end of Jonah? God is speaking to his prophet Jonah about the people of Nineveh, and he says, shall I not have compassion on them? He says, they they don't know their right hand from their left. Does that emotion, that experience of compassion rise up in your heart when you witness the sins of people outside the church? When you look upon sinners, do you feel compassion for those in need of the grace of God? Christians are to be lovers of their fellow men. The fundamental posture of the Christian toward outsiders is to be one of gentleness, goodwill, and perfect courtesy. And in the book of Titus, we learn that this is the product of the grace of God. This is one of the effects, one of the symptoms of the grace of God at work in an individual. Those who have experienced the grace of God are meant to become gracious themselves. Those who have experienced God's forgiveness become themselves forgiving people. Those who have experienced the Lord's compassion become compassionate themselves. This is like the course that grace takes in the lives of those who have been born again. What is our basic orientation toward those outside the Christian community? It is to be one of love. Now consider with me secondly. Grace teaches us to love outsiders. Secondly, grace reminds us that we ourselves were once outsiders. Grace reminds us that we ourselves were once outsiders. We're to be gentle, we're not to be quarrelsome, we're to malign no one, we're to show perfect courtesy toward all people, we're to love outsiders, verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, Now you recognize, right, that is the description of the sort of people we are to love. We've just been told we're to have this gracious posture toward all the people of the world because we ourselves were just like them. And how are they described? And how are we described in our former lives before grace came to us? As foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. 
When Paul wants to provide an example to these Cretan Christians of wicked people, of vile sinners who have been saved supernaturally by the grace of God, he doesn't tell them to think of someone locked up for heinous crimes or something like that. He doesn't paint a picture of the most wretched sinner he can possibly imagine. He tells them to look at themselves, to look inward, and to call to mind their former lives before the grace of God came for them. In other words, he's telling them, surely, surely you know what it's like to be an outsider. You remember, right, what it is to be a stranger to the grace of God? Do you recall what it's like to be lost in your sins? Have you so soon forgotten what it is to be a stranger to grace? See, he's not theoretical with them. He's not painting a hypothetical scenario. He's appealing to their experience. He's appealing to their memory. Like, 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 like in the reserves of your memory banks and your experience, you know what it's like. We know what it's like to be far from God to be aliens to the grace of God. We ourselves are once foolish and disobedient and slaves to various passions, hating, hating others and being hated by others ourselves. Yes, Cretans, as Paul said in chapter 1, quoting one of the prophets of the day, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says this is true. But now he's saying it was also true of you. That description from one of those Cretan prophets that, that Paul says under the inspiration of the Spirit is true. He's saying, yes, and, and that, that's where you were. You were included among the evil beasts, the lazy gluttons, and the liars. And Paul's point in reminding them of their former lives, Paul's basic argument is that our experience of sin gives us a point of contact with outsiders a point of commonality. He says, if you want to find a sinner deserving of eternal punishment, you don't need to look at death row. You need to look in a mirror and recognize, I have committed these crimes. I am guilty of these same sins. I am deserving of the same punishment as them. Brothers and sisters, when we witness the sinfulness of outsiders around us, we should feel a connection with them. We have in our own experience of sin and our own lives commonality with them. We should even feel a sense of solidarity with sinners because we're made of the same stuff. We have in our own experience the bitter taste of sin. We ourselves, as the text says, were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. See, our own experience informs us. We know what it's like to be sinners outside the grace of God, and in our sinfulness, we feel a sense of solidarity with such people, the kind of solidarity that can only be born out of experience. So let me be very direct here. When you look at your homosexual neighbor, your blasphemous neighbor, your neighbor who lives in sinful self-indulgence, you should think there is more of that in me than I care to admit. 
When you see people sin in flagrant ways, you should think that's in my heart too. And that's where I was until grace intruded in upon me, broke in upon me. I was right there, but I was arrested. I was seized. I was halted. I was compelled and constrained by the grace and love and mercy of God. Now look, there, there does exist, right? We know this. A real difference between true Christians, those who are truly born again by the Spirit of God, there does exist a real difference between true Christians and those who are outside of Christ. I'm not suggesting that's not the case. But what makes the decisive difference? Is it not only the grace of God? It's the only thing that creates a difference between you as a born-again child of God and that sinful person in your experience far from God. As the text says, we ourselves were all these things were sure, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, it's, it's sudden, it's an epiphany, when, when the goodness and loving kindness and grace of God came to us and appeared to us, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. None of us qualified ourselves for this. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So what are we going to do? Boast now about our position? Are we going to feel superior to our sinful neighbors? Or are we going to bless the grace of God that has made us what we are and then plead for that same grace for our neighbors? I've observed in my own heart and in others, Christians can often look down on others, particularly in areas uh, where they themselves are strong. So, so we seem to have a special intolerance for the weaknesses of others in areas where we're strong ourselves, or for the failures of others in areas where we ourselves have success. And so you have someone, let's say, who's especially hardworking and diligent, and they just have a profound intolerance for people who are lazy. Or you have someone who, who really has cultivated the virtue of self-control, and they just have very little tolerance for those who can't control themselves and their lusts and their passions and their words and their speech and all of that. Someone who's very patient, and man, it just grates on them when they see the impatience of others. Friends, it's really helpful to remember in those moments, there is nothing that we are and there's nothing that we have that is not the product of the grace of God. So, so you're a very hardworking individual. And ducky for you. But, but, but how did you become hardworking? How did you become so competent and diligent, doing your work as unto the Lord? Whatever answer or reason you might provide, it ultimately will go back to the grace of God in your life. So, 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 so you've been helped to have self-control. Well, how'd you get that way? How'd you become that way? Is it not the effect of the grace of God in your life? There's no good in us, no virtue in us that is not the product of God's grace, the gift of God's grace. And that should create in us a very happy tolerance for the sins and failures of others. And that should motivate us to pray for others, that the same grace would be shown to them, the same grace would come to them and appear to them and train them to live upright and godly lives in the present age. Friends, how could our posture towards sinners be anything other than sympathetic? 
anything other than compassionate. You ever known someone who is addicted to like hard drugs, like heroin or cocaine or meth or something like that? Someone who's like, like in that world, addicted, and, and, and they get out of it, you know, and they, they, they're clean for 10 years or something like that. Such people normally have tremendous sympathy for those who are still stuck in that vice. P- people who are still addicted to those kinds of drugs. They, they, they normally want to help those people. They sometimes will become activists to help those in drug rehab programs or something like that because they can remember the high. Their own experience, they can remember what it was like to be in bondage, what it was like to be enslaved to these drugs, and it creates in them, at least it ought to create in them, a generous sympathy for those who are still caught up in that world. Well, you might think of people who come out of impoverished communities and they want to go back to those communities. There's a, a British footballer, a British soccer player named Sadio Mane. He's one of the best players on one of the best soccer clubs in the world. He plays for Liverpool Football Club. And he's from Senegal, grew up in Senegal, and now he makes literally hundreds of millions of pounds playing soccer. I was watching an interview with him, and um, apparently Sadio Mane spends most of his free time back in Senegal, in the impoverished communities he came from, and he gives most of his money away to establish schools and, 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 and places for medical care and things like that. And he was asked, you know, why don't you enjoy some of your affluence? Why don't you reap some of the benefits? You know, why, why are you so motivated to funnel resources back to Senegal? And his response was so striking. He said, because I was hungry. I used to play football bare feet. I used to work in the fields. I never had an education. What am I going to do now? Buy 20 Ferraris? What good would that do for me or for the world? So he had this sense that through God-given gifts, he had risen out of this poor community, and now he, he's, he's filled with sympathy for those who are, who are there, and he wants to go to them and to help them, to minister to them. I feel certain that one of the reasons people find it hard to show compassion to sinners is because they themselves have never truly seen themselves as great sinners, as something vile, as something ugly, as something dark. You will never be loving or compassionate towards sinners until you learn from experience to see yourself as a sinner in need of the grace of God. Until you have the perspective of this passage, we ourselves, me, myself, I was caught up in these things. I was an alien to the grace of God. I was enslaved to sin and to various passions and lusts. I hated others and was hated by others. You remember that account of the Lord when He was invited to the house of Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7? He goes to Simon's house, perhaps Simon the Pharisee thought there would be some really good dialogue about the Torah or something like that, and that they could do kind of a point-counterpoint and discuss how to interpret the law, and Jesus comes in, and shortly after, a sinful woman barges in on the occasion, and she's so possessed by a sense of her own sinfulness, she comes over to the Lord, and she's weeping, and she kneels down to His feet, and she's crying so, so profusely that her tears 
fall upon Jesus' feet, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And Simon is disgusted by this. And he says, if, 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 if Jesus knew the type of woman who was kneeling at his feet right now doing this, he would be repelled also. He would be disgusted also. Do you remember what the Lord said to Simon? He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have been forgiven little love little. This woman had the awareness she had been forgiven much. And so she pours out her love and affection upon the Lord. Simon had no sense that he had very much that he needed to repent of. No sense that he himself was in need of the grace of God. But this woman, she's commended because she knows herself to be a sinner. She knows herself to be in need of the grace of God. And she's pouring out her love for the Lord in that beautiful expression of penitence and faith. Charles Spurgeon was a famous pastor in London in the 19th century. He would have been sort of like the Billy Graham of that era. And preaching to his congregation on the evening of February 19, 1865, he was speaking to them along the lines of the theme I'm speaking to you on now. And he was encouraging his congregation to remember the time before they were a Christian and how they were living in sin, and then particularly how the grace of God came to them and saved them. And he said this, how gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God, came to you irresistibly, and came to you with such personal demonstration, what grace was here? What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? Some of you were drunkards, were profane, were injurious. Many of you cared neither for God nor man. How often have you mocked at God's Word? How frequently have you despised God's ministers? How constantly has the holy name of the Most High been used in a flippant, if not in a profane manner, by you? And yet, for all that, He fixed His eye upon you and would not withdraw it. And when you spurned the grace that would have saved you, still He followed you, determined to save till at last in the appointed time He got the grasp of you and would not let you go until He had made you His friend, turned your heart to love Him, and made your spirit obedient to His grace. I think throughout eternity, if we had this problem to solve, why did He save me? We should still go on making wrong guesses, but we would never arrive at the right conclusion unless we should say once for all, I do not know. Oh, if He had not called you, where would you have been today? Where would you have been but for grace? Then he says, when you see the swearer in the street or the drunkard rolling home at night, there are you, there am I, but for the grace of God. Who am I? What should I have been if the Lord in mercy had not stopped me in my mad career? 
If it had not been for the grace of God, I should have been an out-and-out ringleader in every kind of infamy and sin. This was a kind and gracious call when we consider what we might have been. Do you have a sense of the surprising nature of the grace of God in your own life? Do you have a sense of, of the trajectory of your own sinfulness and where it was taking you? Have you ever contemplated what you might have been had not the grace of God appeared to you and changed you? There are a lot of people who will suggest that to Instruct people, encourage people to think upon their sinful backgrounds is somehow harmful to them. But friends, it is only with a proper estimation of our own sinfulness, where we were outside the grace of God and where we would have been had His grace not intruded on us, it's only with a proper estimation of our own sin that we will properly estimate the greatness of the grace of God. I heard of a man who kept a book in his pocket, his coat pocket. It had three leaves in the book, three pages, no words. One was black, one was red, and one was white. And he said he would often look at that black page. You know what that black page represented? It represented his sinfulness. And the red page represented him the blood of Christ that cleansed him from every stain of sin. And the white page represented the purity of Christ's righteousness imputed to him. And he said, I would often look at that black page, just stare at it. And I would think, what if every page were black? But bless God, the grace of God in the blood of Jesus Christ intruded upon me, changed me and saved me and made me whiter than snow. Third and final point, and I'll just be very brief here because my time is gone. Grace teaches us to love outsiders. Grace reminds us that we ourselves were once outsiders. And thirdly, grace teaches us to hope that salvation can reach outsiders because it has reached us. Grace teaches us to hope that salvation can reach outsiders precisely because it has reached us. Remember chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. The grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel, the grace of God was offered to all salvation and Jesus. And in the process of time, it appeared to us. And the grace of God, His goodness, and His loving kindness, He saved us. We know from experience that sinners can be saved, can be changed and transformed by the grace of God. See, it's not just doctrine, right? It's not just Bible verses. It's not just doctrine that raises our expectation that people really can be saved. Isn't it our experience? I, mean, I, 
I could tell everyone here, the Bible teaches that you can be saved by the grace of God, but I can go further than that. I can say, I know in my own experience what it is to be a sinner, lost, and outside of the grace of God. I know what it is to be naked before the Lord. I know what it is to be covered in blackness and in sin and in darkness. And I know what it means to experience His grace and forgiveness. Our experience ought to elevate our expectations that the grace of God can reach anybody because it reached us. Because we've been changed, we've been saved, we've been transformed. The grace of God could reach me, it could reach you, it could reach anyone. And my friend here this morning who's not a Christian, I return to addressing you. I assure you that I am fully qualified to offer the grace of God to you not only as a gospel minister who has studied these things out in the Word of God, but as a filthy, vile sinner who himself has been washed by the grace of God and has been forgiven. And there are another hundred or so people in this room who could say the same thing to you. The grace of God appeared to us, and it transformed us and freed us and redeemed us in ways we never thought possible. We have ourselves partaken of the grace of God. And I can tell you, On the basis of God's Word and from personal experience, the grace of God can change you, can save you. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And if you know yourself to be a sinner, if you know yourself to be in need of the grace of God, you can come to Him. You can come to Him just like that woman who came to the Lord and wept at His feet. And you could experience something of the forgiveness that comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ turning away from sin and putting your faith and trust in Him, and you will experience the grace of God that saves and transforms and trains. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. We ourselves were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others, and we hated one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, against the backdrop of all that we know to be true about ourselves, the knowledge that we have in our heart of hearts of our sinfulness, the many ways we have sinned against you, broken your law, rebelled against your authority, and acted out in terrible ways. Against the backdrop of what we know about our sinful record, How brightly does the grace of God shine in our eyes to know that we can be saved and forgiven and changed by your grace. We want more and more to be transformed and to be changed. We want to experience more of your grace. We pray that grace would appear increasingly more large to us in our own experience. 
that all of us should be sort of overawed and overwhelmed by the greatness of the grace of God. And may that have the effect of transforming us ourselves into gracious people, forgiving people, compassionate people. Don't permit us to be the sort of people who would look down on our fellow sinners, but who would love them, go to them and speak the truth to them, and offer to them the grace that we ourselves have found purely as a gift from You. How we bless You and how we thank You that You have been so kind as to cause Your grace to appear in many of our lives. We don't know why Your grace came to us. And we would go on making wrong guesses until we settled on that answer, I do not know. But Lord, we pray that the product of that grace at work in our lives would be that we would pursue holiness and godliness, that we would pursue a loving disposition toward the people of the world, and that we would never lose sight of the great magnitude of the grace of God in saving us from our sins. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.